I was in Japan on a stage one time and, and one of these very fancy people asked me a question. He says, you know, it is like, he's fascinated that I don't sell my labor. And so he's like, how do you survive? You know, <laughs> like, how does it work? And I, I, I said that you have faith in banks. And, and I look at that and I say, how do you survive? I have faith in nature. And so my bank is nature. Right. And, and what does it mean to have nature as your bank? It means that you are connected to each other through relationship. And what does it mean to have relationships, which means to circulate your merits, circulate your, your, your gifts. Deep conversations about what really matters with the best minds in business, startups, sports, music and many more. This is the Best in Class podcast. Anipanji, again, thank you for your time. It's so wonderful to have you. I think time is the best gift that I ask uh, of anyone and you have very kindly uh, given me that uh, gift. I hope I'll make uh, this conversation with your wife. So first of all, welcome to the show. This is a show where I meet amazing people from all facets of life. You are probably one of the most different, I would say, of the guests that I've had so far. So, so far I've had the privilege or the pleasure of talking to startup founders, uh, senior executives, company builders, and so on. And I would like to let our listeners know that you probably are at the other end of the spectrum, the non-profit space and not just not-for-profit, but kind of an organization that doesn't even do fundraise, completely volunteer-driven and completely in the impact space. So uh, Nipunji, it's a pleasure. Thanks again. I, I hope to learn a lot from you. I always like to draw upon very different perspectives and you know look at life from very different angles. And I, I believe your perspective or your way of looking at life is uh, desperately needed or at least a balance of that is needed in today right yeah. so a couple of things i want to do because not many people might know you uh, here in india so i want to start off with one of the quotes i found in your uh, website uh, service space so nipun mehta is the founder of service space uh, a not for profit organization actually i would call it a collection of organizations the amount of impact that he's been able to have with this set of volunteers. I'll just read this quote I found on his website homepage. Uh, we aim to create a shift from consumption to contribution, uh, transaction to trust, uh, scarcity to abundance and isolation. I thought that was such a beautiful way of encapsulating a lot of what you and your set of volunteers have been able to do. And uh, for those who don't know what service space is, I think it's a collection of, I would call it initi initiatives, projects, content, production, a lot of things. But all of these things are coming together beautifully under one umbrella. And as I mentioned before, driven by volunteers, driven by people who want to make a difference in one way or the other. So welcome again. And anything you would want to add to your introduction so that the listeners are more aware of all the things that you do, I might have missed. Well, th thank you. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And I, I guess I would just add that we are not simply what we do, but we are who we become by what we do. So I think a lot of my work is really just an attempt to become a better human being. You know, I, I, I think that's what I wanted to do in my teens. And I was a philosopher and not a philosopher technically, but I was seeking, I was asking deeper questions and reading a lot of the philosophy books and scriptures in different traditions. And then in, in my 20s, I, I discovered service and as a way to sort of transform my deepest core. And I've continued with that. So I, I, I think ultimately, I'm just a human being seeking happiness and trying to become, you know, more integrated person as I grow. Awesome. So many questions I have for you just from that uh, one sentence, but let's, let's start from the beginning, right? So usually uh, whenever I, I find interesting people, I try to dig into the child and usually there are you know nuggets of uh, experiences that, that have made them who they are. So let's start from there. This path is not, not the beaten track, right? It's very different. The usual path is, you know, go get a college degree, go find a job or your money, you know, retire at 50. But as you said, right in your teens, you're thinking about deep questions. So that itself is a is a different, I would say, an indication that something is is different, right? And then you have started this organization many, many years ago and have continued in this space. It has given you happiness. What from your childhood has led to this path? And, and how have you experienced life? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I think so many times, I, I agree in the sense I like that question because so many times we tend to draw very simplistic linear lines of causation. Oh, I did this, I worked hard and I achieved success. You can do it too. And yes, there may be a little bit of your effort that contributes to your success, but there's also a lot of 
X factors, right? There's a lot of grace. There's a lot of serendipity. There's a lot of like, oh, I happen to be born into this family. And that, you know, inspired me to take this left turn or right turn. So I think a lot, all too often, we owe it to ourselves to include these sort of these factors that perhaps we're not mindful of. So I, I remember, I remember I was getting an award one time and it was a very fancy event. And there was, you know, on, they had two giant screens uh, on the left and the right side of the stage. And they put up all the things that I had done. And I go up and very spontaneously, I remember from not just my childhood, but like from my great grandfather's life. And I, I requested the organizer, can you, can you bring those accomplishments down? Because I'd like to share a different kind of story. And what I shared was how my great grandfather used to, he, he was very materially poor, but at the same time, he had a very big heart. And what he would do is he would go to these flour mills, you know, where they take wheat grain and turn it into wheat flour. And they throw away some of these small grains, which are not great grains. And my grand, uh, great grandfather would like crush them and, you know, by hand. And then he would go and feed the ants. And what I said is that, you know, that what you may think you can bring all your McKinsey consultants and you may look at that and say, well, what's the impact of that? And they would say, well, that's like sweet, nice, kind, you know, but not really significant. And I, and, and I went on to say, well, but it's very significant for me because I know exactly how it changed my grandfather. And I know exactly how then it changed my mom. And I know how that translated into my upbringing and inspired me to, in ways that perhaps I'm not even conscious, but there are so many of these factors. And so I actually am in reverence to all those forces, seen and unseen, that make us, uh, that make us who we are. So I, I think I, I feel lucky to have the kind of context uh, that I grew up in, my parents let me be, let me listen to the, you know, the uncommon voices in my heart. I mean, imagine going to your mom and dad and saying, yeah, you know, you've sacrificed everything for me to get a good education. I'm in one of the premier institutions. And guess what? I happen to come out right at the time when like, this is when, you know, once in a generation opportunity, you're coming out in the Silicon Valley, the dot-com era is just hitting. I mean, this is like, if you've been practicing surfing, you know, this is the big wave that comes like once in a generation and your parents have sacrificed so much for you to have this and you were saying no you know I I want to I, I want to serve I want to give I don't want to have a price tag to my labor and they were like you know and these are great aspirational ideas you know but you don't actually you're not going to put all your chips in that basket like you know when you're 20 22 or 24 so you know to their credit I think they let me play in in this field they would push back I would push back but you know we were all committed to being at the table and and you know ultimately they really blessed me to take this path and and you know all those things I think from my great-grandfather to my parents it really factors into all that I am today not just not merely even what I do all that I am did you grow up with your great-grandfather no no I, I didn't unfortunately he passed away I, I never actually even knew my uh, grandfather he had a untimely death uh, but my grandma's still alive so how did his story reach I oh through my mom and, and my grandma who often tells me a lot of great stories but I'm still trying to connect the dots to me so I mean, obviously, you've heard these stories. Obviously, you've experienced what your sisters had been doing in, in service. And, but for that to impact you so deeply, it must have happened over time consistently, you know, as you are growing up and you have seen this happen again. And again. What were some of those experiences? So when you have, you have a certain context, but the context comes alive when, when something happens, like you're at the store. And my dad was just telling the story. I was at the store when I was a kid. And the person at the store, the cashier, gave us too much money, as in by mistake, you know, in return for whatever, you know, you give them a 20 and they give you change back. And we had already left and we'd already gone to the parking lot. And then I noticed that. And it's kind of cumbersome 
to go back, stand in line. It was a busy day just for a little bit of money. And I would insist. I was like, no, I think that we should go back and do that. You know, and my, you know I'm sure my dad was probably thinking, nah, you know, it's not really worth it. And I, like, and that was a trait. And so those kinds of things or like the first time I went back to India, I, I grew up in India for the first 12, 13 years in Gujarat. And then, and, and then four of us, my brother and my parents, we moved to California. But, you know, when, we when we first went back I remember meeting up with one of my kindergarten friends and he had just got a new moped and he was like showing off his moped and you know he, he was and, and he's going really fast and I, I keep telling him to slow down and he's like no no I said I'm gonna throw up he says no no I said ah, I have an American stomach he's like no no you know <laughs> and and sure enough I throw up and as I throw up, there's a random passerby who's, who sees that here are these two teenagers in trouble. <laughs> Let me help them. And he takes out, he goes to a stall nearby, takes out a lemon, cuts the lemon in half and gives us half the lemon. And you can look at that and you can say, well, that's just a small act of kindness. Uh, and you can let it pass. But if you have this kind of context of stories from your grandparents, stories from your parents, of encouragement, your dad not saying, hey, it's not worth it. Let's go home. And that's extra cash, you know, but saying, okay, if you really want to practice your honesty here, let's go back. If you have had such a context, then that experience of even half a lemon lands so deeply and you realize that, wow, like who would give half a lemon? maybe he could only he only had one lemon for himself and he gave me half of what he had because you know if you had an abundance of lemons you would just give both the lemon pieces right not just one and so he gave me that and then you say well who do you have to be to actually help somebody not even introduce yourself not get any credit not have a twitter follower or a facebook friend out of it or instagram friend what is you know what does it mean to serve in that kind of a way and and so you start to you know it starts to beg different questions and what does a ripple effect like i'm here so many decades later remembering this episode mm -hmm. my mom is here so many generations later remembering her great-grandfather and so do i just want to have a immediate short-term measurable impact or do I want to actually have a ripple effect kind of an impact? Mm -hmm. And how are those things different? And how do I equip myself to differentiate first between those two, and then to figure out how much I invest in each one, right? So it starts to beg all of these questions. And if it's not for the context, then these things happen to you. And you're like, ah, well, whatever, you know, I threw up, I can understand why I threw up because my friend's driving so fast. And okay, yeah, if you see somebody in pain, you're going to offer help, right? Like, so you're just not going to unpack the larger mysteries of life uh, without that context. And, and so I would, have, I would have a series of these experiences and a series of these, you know, remarkable moments that make you question your whole identity, actually. So it was like a repeated series of events that took me into that space. And, but it's not just those experiences, it's the context that animated them. Makes me think, right? Maybe there are many experiences even I've had. Like you said, I didn't manage to unpack the layers are didn't manage to connect the dots maybe yeah, yeah. and and maybe it's happening all the time yeah. right and it's like how deeply are we willing to look at that sunset i remember krishnamurti j krishnamurti was a big influence especially in my teen years i would i would read him and he would say you know when you're looking at the sunset are you looking at the sunset or are you thinking of looking at the sunset you know it's like there's so many layers and those layers are such blocks to actually have a raw experience of the present moment and if you can't have an experience of the present moment, what is all this charade? What is it worth, you know? And so for me, these, these kinds of penetrating questions have always been at the forefront of my consciousness. And maybe a very trivial question for someone who thinks so deeply, but I think it'll be relevant for many, many of our listeners and even for myself. How do you think about money, achievement, or safety nets? You know, when, when you started off, it would have been... Such a shock, right? You don't know where your next salary in quotes, salary in quotes yeah. will come from. What does that even mean? You're in the valley. It's going to be an expensive place to live. People are making money around you, right? What does it mean to you? How do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's a trivial question at all. I think it's a very pressing question. You know, every time you go to the grocery store to buy something, you hit, hit that question, you know? Yeah, I mean, what is one's relationship to money? And I think the default narrative is one of accumulation. And I think where I have shifted over the years is to move from accumulation to flow. And what you get with accumulation 
is you have, you know, I was in Japan on a stage one time and, and one of these very fancy people asked me a question. He says, you know, it is like, he's fascinated that I don't sell my labor. And so he's like, how do you survive? You know, <laughs> like, how does it work? And I, I, I said that you have faith in banks. And, and I look at that and I say, how do you survive? I have faith in nature. And so my bank is nature. Right. And, and what does it mean to have nature as your bank? It means that you are connected to each other through relationship. And what does it mean to have relationships, which means to circulate your merits, circulate your, your, your gifts. And so when you do that, when you accumulate, there is a kind of security that comes, right? Like you can say, okay, well, I'm going to take this. I'm going to keep it in the bank. As long as the bank's there, I can be sure that I have purchasing power. And, and that sounds great, but what is the opportunity cost of storing all of that wealth? Mm. Um, and, and because you always have an opportunity cost, right? So you always have to look at it that way. And so you say, what's the opportunity cost? And because if, if what's the opposite of accumulation is flow. So if I were to flow and give it in small ways, to different people, um, what would that do? I would have so many relationships. Yeah. And what does what does that web of relationships do? I mean, even going back to my great grandfather, he passed away. You know, on uh, sorry, not my great grandfather, my grandfather. He passed away in a very untimely way in an accident, and he had six daughters. My mom was the eldest, and he was such a big giver. So everything he had, he would just always, you know, he would be giving, and so everyone assumed that he had a lot. So when he passed away in that way, the community got together and my grandma had a fourth grade education. And now, you know, six daughters. And in, in that kind of a context, it feels like a very daunting scenario. And all the elders in the community got together and said, let's look, look at your finances. And my grandfather had 700 rupees. Mm. That's it. Like his net worth was 700 rupees. And you're like, how could you be such a giver mm. when you have got 700 rupees and and but see, what was his logic? His logic was that he's investing in relationships. And you look at all six daughters, they're all thriving. All their kids are all thriving. And you say, what was the big lesson there? The lesson was that he didn't accumulate, that he invested in relationships, which really means to invest in people's hearts. And relationships give you resilience. And that resilience means that life is invariably going to throw you a curveball. And when it throws you a curveball and you fall down, instead of falling down on a cement floor, you're going to fall down on a trampoline and you're going to get back right up, right? So, you know, there's a famous quote. It says, a saint is not somebody who never falls down. It's just like any every, everyday person who falls down, but if 99 times they fall down, they get up a hundred times. So there's that one extra gear that you're always like looking to rebound and come to even higher heights. So for me, money and all these resources, like everything that happens to us. You can even look at power and fame in the same way. I, I think we, we hold it, we are trustees of it. But if we start to be identified with it, mm. like if your identity is, I have this much amount of money and that's my identity, or I have this title and that's my identity, or I have done all these things and that's my identity, or I have a million followers on Instagram, that's my identity then I think all of a sudden we, we are not circulating and that's going to cost us relationships and that's going to cost us resilience. And that's not going to ultimately, in the long run, we can go fast, but we won't be able to go far. Very, very interesting way of looking at it. I think I understand what you're saying. I understand where you're coming from. I think accumulation, that too, without an end sometimes, you know, more, more, just more, even more. And uh, yeah, I, th there's no end to that. Uh, which brings me to my next question. So I, I've been thinking about these questions a lot, right? What does impact mean? Do I even need to impact? Like, does it even matter in the long run, right? If if I think about impact, then there are multiple ways to impact, right? I can go and serve people. Like I can serve folks in my neighborhood. I can start a community kitchen, for example. Yeah. Or I can go teach. Or a way of impacting can also be capitalism where you go and earn money. And my value system says that the, that money should, let's say, hypothetically right i become a, a billionaire i have more ways of impacting the world with the money and creating or spreading my worldview and and hence helping more people but that very rarely happens you know accumulation then followed by philanthropy or accumulation followed by as you said sharing right so what are your thoughts on this type of thinking of i will earn first and hence then i will do something or 
money as the way to do good or capitalism as the way to do good. Do you, do you see any merit to this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a very natural thing. This is what we all grew up with. You know, I remember my wife and I went on a walking pilgrimage right after our marriage. So we sold everything we had and we went to the Gandhi ashram and we decided we we're going to eat whatever food is offered and sleep wherever place is offered and do small acts of service along the way. I mean, it's a it's a life transformative thing. I mean, maybe multiple life transformations in that one pilgrimage. But there were so many people that would be like, well, if you want to give, uh, first you have to have something to give, right? Like we, you know, you gotta, you know, otherwise, what are you gonna give? And my counter question to them is, does that mean I was born bankrupt? <laughs> And, and and that's a worldview that you don't have anything and go and get and then you give and that's a very narrow splice of our gifts. I, I, I don't think we're born bankrupt. I think we all have different gifts. I think even if you're financially poor, you may be incredibly gifted in so many other ways that I think we really have to broaden this idea of wealth. But to your point that when you look at impact, you know, I think we're, we have this, you know, sociologists would call it the recency bias, right? Like you want to, like something that just happened, it kind of feels more important than something that perhaps has a long tail effect, a ripple effect. And so all too often we are looking at impact. We are looking at our lives and we have optimized it for very short-term feedback. And, and, and this is how we engage even with each other. We start to do transactions, which is essentially direct if you look at reciprocity as this process of give and take, we're always in mode of reciprocity. We're receiving, whether it's from larger causes or smaller causes. But when we shrink our awareness down just to the immediate, it makes us very transactional. And transaction is essentially very direct reciprocity. And so how do you move from that direct reciprocity to indirect reciprocity? which is a much bigger reciprocity. And then from indirect reciprocity where, and we all experience this in our families, right? Indirect is like your, your grandma, right? Like she helped you when she was young. She hasn't kept a ledger, right? Yeah. She hasn't been like, okay, Harish, you need to come back and do this for me when I'm 94 years old. That is is indirect, but there's even a stage beyond indirect, which is infinite reciprocity. Where you look at somebody and you say, well, this is not just an old woman. This is somebody's grandma. And that's good enough because we're connected to each other in this, you know, the phrase that comes to mind is Vasudeva Kutumbakam, like something that my mom used to share when we were all, all through, even now, like that the whole world is my family. And so this notion, so first challenge with accumulation is that like we don't actually stop accumulating. Like, so it becomes a very insidious habit. And you may even stop accumulating, you know, money, right? You may say, oh my God, I have billions. Okay, I should give. But then you start accumulating impact. And then you start accumulating this sense of self-worth and this inflated sense of how gifted you are. Mm. And these are very subtle traps. So the pattern is it's not so much about what you're accumulating. It's more the pattern that's in our minds that needs to be unraveled and unpacked. And then if you look at somebody who has unpacked some of those patterns in themselves and you give them a billion dollars, what would they do? Like, would they really, would they scatter it in the field of consciousness in, in a thousand small ways, which have a multi-generational effect? Or would they want to like, you know, do something that's very short term and, and have an impact? Would they want to put their name on it? Or would they just be just as happy not having their name on it? I remember a Gandhian elder, an incredible sculptor, Kanti Dada. He, like in Times Square in New York, there's a Gandhi statue uh, of his and, and like in so many other places around the world. So pretty accomplished uh, sculpture, yeah. but it's super simple. Like a really saintly person, he passed away just a few years ago. And I remember asking him, that, you know, because he never signed any of his sculptures, you know, and, and I remember asking him some questions about that. And he says, and I think at some point I had asked him, you know, when do you know that a piece of art is like, when is it complete? And he said, when I realize that I haven't done it. So, so long as there's an eye, he says, oh, this artwork is incomplete. And it's incomplete, not because of the physical manifestation, but because of its connection to my inner identity. And so that incompleteness, so if you have that incompleteness and you create all these tentacles in the world with all the work that you are doing, all the impact that you're creating, it still feels a little bit incomplete. It's not unconditional service. 
And so I would, whether I had a billion dollars or I had a few pennies, I would look at that resource or, or even if I'm looking at non-financial capital, I would look at that resource and say, can I give in a way that I'm not accumulating? I think this goes down to the teachings of the Gita for me. That means not being attached to the outcomes. That's the most kingly way of giving. When when you help, right? There's a beautiful quote by Rachel Naomi Remen. She says, when you help, you see life as weak. Mm. When you fix, you see life as broken. Mm. When you serve, you see life as a co-creative whole. And so what does it mean to be not like this beggarly giver that I kind of have to give, you know, or a neighborly giver, I should give because, you know, that's my neighbor. And then who knows, maybe I need sugar a, few, a little bit later, but more of a kingly giver, right? That I'm giving because it's in my own nature. And so to me, asking, holding that question uh, of what does it mean? Like a rose doesn't give its scent because it's saying, oh, I think Harish has a higher net worth than Nipun. No, the rose is giving its sense unconditionally because it is in its nature. And so I think that the, the overarching question really is about how can I, you know, no matter what I'm doing, how am I doing it so that I'm arriving at this kingly state? And if you arrive at this kingly state uh, of, of being, it's like everybody wins. A rising tide lifts all boats. Like you win. You may end up being rich or you may end up being rich in this capital or this different form of wealth. It doesn't really matter because what's the purpose of that is that you're going to be circulating it. So you will just be a lot more relevant to the whole matrix of existence if you are a kingly giver. If you're not, if you accumulate and if you're trying to even like penny pinch for impact, like, oh my God, I I started 10,000 schools or I created... I made 8,000 toilets. You know? and, and in fact, speaking of toilets, one of my mentors, you can say, was someone who inspired me, was a fellow who made 400,000 toilets. Mm. And he started hundreds of organizations, in fact, and he received the highest honors in India in the previous generation. And at his funeral, they had to shut down entire streets because everybody came from all walks of life, from janitors to heads of state. And his wife at the funeral, you know, goes up and she says she was the last speaker and says, all of you know about all his external work, but let me tell you what this man meant to me. Mm-hmm. In one sentence, she says, she kind of sums him up. He says, I've been married to him my whole life. And through all those decades, he never once got angry with me. Wow. That's impact. His name was Ishwar Patel. And, you know, like you look at that and you say, well, how do I measure that with the 400,000 toilets he's made? You know, which one is easier? Well, you can be sure that 400,000 toilets or a hundred and whatever, 17 organizations that he had helped start or changing even the face of sanitation. None of that compares with that one sentence compliment from his wife mm. of decades, right? From his lifelong wife. So to, to me, the, all these questions start coming in when you look at impact and you say, well, which impact am I going for? And which impact should I be going for? And what are the patterns underneath each of these impacts? And so for me, the real, the most, the most powerful benchmark is sort of the core teaching of the Gita in that sense that you give without any expectation. Forget even giving, you act mm. without any expectation of the outcome. And most people think if you have never tested it, if you hear about it somewhere and you're like, well, that's a good idea, you know, but then you start thinking in your head and you say, well, but if I don't take care of the outcome, like who's going to take care of me, Mm -hmm. right? Who's going to take care of mine? Who's going to take care of the things I care for? And you say, well, that means you just haven't tested it because if you actually test it and you realize that you're going to get way more Mm. with infinite reciprocity than you are with direct reciprocity. Because with direct reciprocity, A, I, my ego is in charge. B, you know, I, I can only store what's to the size of my pockets. And even if you have an infinite bank account, pales in comparison to the size of nature's pockets. So you, you really have to say, well, I would say test it out actually go out into the swimming pool. Don't just read a book about swimming, like go into the ocean and, and, and touch the water, feel the water and test it out. Try to do something without any strings attached and see what happens and see how relationships change. 
and see how you change and see the ripple effect of that over time, you will definitely, not only will you rest in the cradle of nature's love, but you will have infinite pockets that will, you know, give you security in a very different way and give you resilience in a very different way and make you come alive in a very different way. How do you get started on this? I mean, <laughs> you could do so many things, right? Especially in India, if I look out of my home, people are generally happy, but there's so much poverty. I can exhaust all my wealth in a day if I just go out and help people. Like it's that, you know, prevalent everywhere around me. How yeah. do you get started? Like what, what, what was your journey? Well, I, I think two things. One is if you, you start here and now, but I think there's two orientation. One orientation is to realize that yes, there is poverty outside. There are people who don't have, and we might have is something of a resource, but there's also poverty inside of us. So to go and look, right, there was a very beautiful, true story from Mother Teresa's life. And in fact, one of my friends was there when this happened, when Mother Teresa at some point had a big funder coming to her and the funder comes and wants a photo at the end. And as they take the photo, Mother Teresa is not in the right spot. So they kind of click and take another photo. And then that's not quite right. They tell her to move her head back. And that's not quite right. And so they actually mechanically with their hand, like move her face just so like they can get this, you know, perfect photo. And my friend looking at this is like furious. And after they leave, she's like, you know, Mother, why didn't you say anything to use like this global icon of compassion in as like some object for your wall and a photo, like that's just not right. And Mother Teresa said something very beautiful that I think changed my friend's life. Mm -hmm. And she says, my dear, there are many forms of poverty that if there's a child left at her doorstep mm -hmm. and there were so many times she actually picked up kids like by near trash cans and you know, people would do these things. And, and she says, yeah, they had a material kind of poverty. And that's real. And you have to address that. But this person that came in had a spiritual kind of poverty, had an emotional poverty. And if it helps you to move my face around and be happy, I'm happy to do that, you know. And so I think the first thing I would uh, recommend is to have that orientation. Mm -hmm. That it's not poverty out there. There is poverty out there, of course, but there's also poverty in here. Mm -hmm. And if we are mindful of that, then the way in which we engage with that poverty will be very different. I've had so many conversations, the same people that we might call poor, I've, they've actually, that's how I survived. People would borrow food to feed us on our walking pilgrimage, my wife and I, when we were walking across India, you know, and so you're like, wow. They have material poverty, but they have a different kind of wealth too that I don't have. I have a poverty of that kind of wealth. And so when you meet people in that way, it becomes less about, you know, like sort of a top-down giving. It moves from your experience of it being sympathy mm -hmm. to more empathy and then ultimately to compassion. And these are neurologically speaking, like science tells us, these are three different brain neural networks mm -hmm. that awaken in us. So my first recommendation would be to think of it in that way, that look, we're all suffering in different ways. And I'm, you know, I'm here to hug you so that we can help each other. And then that hug can take an expression of a small act of kindness. And so that would be my second thing is to go and do that small act of kindness. And, and when you do that, after once you do that, come back and reflect and say, was that, because if, if I had electrodes on you, I could tell you the difference. Was that sympathy? Was that empathy? Or was that compassion? And these are three very different things. Sympathy is like, oh, I have, you don't have. Empathy is like, your pain is like my pain. Literally, Science tells us this, that we literally experience it in our bodies, you know, and the problem with that is that that will burn you out. You will have to shut the door because it's too much. Like if you start to own everybody's pain, compassion is where you're there with the pain, but you understand that it's not your own. So you're holding somebody's hand for resilience, but you're like, I'm here with you, but it's not yours. And that's a very different state. And that's a very powerful state. It's a very regenerative state. So I would say go out and meet life in an agenda-less way as a kingly giver with the recognition that we're all suffering. We all have different forms of poverty, even if we're not mindful of that in that moment. 
It may be that, oh, Nipun has no money, Rish has a lot of money, but that's just what we're aware of. But maybe we have different traits that we're both better off for coming together in this you know, sacred way. And when we do that, we do ourselves a favor and we do the whole world a favor. And you trust in that ripple effect to create an entire revolution even. So it's a very different way to approach philanthropy. It's a way of ultimately becoming a good person. So your wife can say at your funeral or otherwise that, man, this guy was like the kindest person I knew, or this guy would never got angry with me, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, beautiful, Ripunji. And can I, can, I, can I pick more on compassion for my own understanding, right? I, I, I didn't quite get it. So I'm going to ask you. I understood the difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion, but I didn't understand what is happening during that moment. Is it, is it that you are offering your presence and hence letting the other piece, person heal? Or are you, because again, we also talked about not attaching yourself to outcomes, right? So it's not compassion leading to an outcome. Actually, then it wouldn't mean the right thing. So yeah. if it is not attached to an outcome, what is happening in that moment? What is compassion doing that could not be done by empathy or something? Yeah. So what compassion is doing, and that's a great that's a great question. If you nuance this, and I think a lot of the spiritual traditions, if you look deeply into it, they are addressing this precise question actually. So what is that? And and, and now we're in a unique spot because science now backs up a lot of this. So what is actually happening in the body? We even when you're doing a small act of genuine service. So you have dopamine that's released, you have oxytocin that's released, you have serotonin that's released. So your body actually starts to feel like it's had 2000 chocolate bars, like literally. So when you eat chocolate bars, all these chemicals go, or even when you're refreshing the screen, right? We get a little dopamine hit, which is why everyone is refreshing their screens 2,700 times a day on average. And so when you look at that, you say, okay, so there's a positive neurofeedback, you know, that's happening. But where compassion is unique is that you have this thing of empathy fatigue. Mm -hmm. You have this thing of burnout, right? And sympathy is just very cheap. So I'm not going to address that. But you have em empathy feels like a great trait because now it's like I'm connected to you. But there is this fatigue that comes in. Whereas an experience of compassion is very regenerative. Okay. So it is something that keeps on fueling. And they have they have done research they've taken these what they call marathon monks mm -hmm. and studied their their brains and it's not something that's a zero-sum game it's not like oh i have ten dollars if i give you ten i have ten less right that's a zero-sum game mm -hmm. that's a degenerative resource this is a regenerative resource that if you smile for example you want to smile more if you give a hug, you want to hug more, right? And, and, and not just that you want to hug more, you actually have more smiles to give, right? The more you exercise something, the more capacity you have. It's like kindness muscles that you are cultivating. So compassion is like that. And, and you have people like the Buddha who verify this. And he says, you know, there are these four native states. Like these are not things that we are discovering, finding, and keeping this is actually something that's your fundamental state. Mm. So he called them Brahma Viharas. And so compassion is one of the four Brahma Viharas. Mm. And so it's like the residence of Brahma, right? So it, this, is, this is who we actually are. And so compassion is our fundamental state. And in that fundamental state, there, your identity is very different. So the deepest experience of compassion has a very different sense of identity. It's a transient identity. It's an identity that is the sum of all our relationships. It is not the ego as an identity. And, and so it's a thing to just kind of experience, you know? So I, I remember one guy came up to me one time and he was a very big businessman. And he's like, how do I start on this path of service? And, and his original intention was, I brainstormed different things in the world. And he was like, I really want to do something unique and leave a legacy behind, you know? <laughs> so we talked about that. And then he was like, you know, so what should I do? And I was like, really, you know what you should do? Every time you pass a toll booth, just pay for the car behind you. And he was like, and, and he had some efficient financial capital, like I can't do that, but he had enough capital to do that rest of his life, right? So I was like, do that. And he's like, okay, yeah, that's really sweet. And I, I like that, you know, you're a sweet guy. But like, what should I really do? And I was like, no, really, that's what you should do. Because when you do that, 
your eyes, you will change yourself, your eyes will change. And that will then open you up to a deeper sense of identity. And that deeper sense of identity will then inform through your own wisdom, that will inform what you need to do. Mm. It will intersect with all your unique gifts, where you are uniquely planted, and how all that unique context will intersect with these eternal resource of compassion. Only you know how those things are going to come together, but you will put yourself in that position if you connect to that compassion. And doing that small act of kindness is actually putting you in position right. to reconnect with that deep resource, which is very regenerative, which fundamentally alters your sense of identity. So to me, it's a very profound process to go through, even if you're doing a startup, right? Like it doesn't really matter which context you're in. It's so portable. You're like, just do this with that mindfulness. So many of my friends are, you know, entrepreneurs. In fact, my my uncle is uh, one of premier entrepreneurs in Indian history. He, he created the whole telecom movement in the previous generation, pre-mobiles. The STD-PCO boots was his invention. And it was in every, every corner of India, you know, and, and, and so there's nothing wrong with being an entrepreneur, with creating new value, with being creative in general. I mean, it's such a profound process, but it's how, it's not so much the what, mm. and it's who we are becoming through that process. Like success is not like, okay, you, you take your company public. Okay. You know, I mean, that sounds appealing. That's a story we're sold in the media. But like actually go, and I know so many such people now, you go and talk to them and that's, you, you see very clearly, this is an untold story in the media, right? That's not success. Success is actually having a smile on your face. Success is discovering compassion. Success is the capacity to give like a king in this moment. Yeah, wonderful. So much to think about. I think I have some homework to do. <laughs> <laughs> To, to understand and actually put this into action. But good things to think about. This is so good, right? Like I, I connect to this so deeply. Compassion is a core value. Uh, and that's the reason why I reached out to you and we are having this conversation. I thought that you are somebody who put it into execution, right? I'm sitting and thinking about it. Now, why is this not everywhere? Why is every human being not thinking about it? Why are <laughs> we having small chats in, on Zoom? And why is everybody not out there, you know, being happy all the time? And, and giving and, you know, universal reciprocity, all these things, this should be like, by the time you are 10 years old, you should be like an expert on these things and everybody should be kind to each other. Like, why is it not so common? What's, what's, wrong? what's happening? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think it's a natural question, right? So I think you were saying, why don't we get it at 10? So I would say we actually get it at two mm. and then we unlearn it. <laughs> so, so they have research. Even Gandhi used to say, you know, if you want to learn the law of love, and he had more faith in the law of love than the law of electricity or the law of gravity, actually. He says it works more precisely than that, but science hasn't really discovered it yet. And if you ask him, where do you, how do you learn the law of love? And he says, from, from children. You know, so, so we have this very inverted idea because it's so intellectually skewed that we think elders have greater <clears throat> intellectual quotient and yeah. hence that's better. But actually, perhaps uh, it's the other way around. And so you say, well, how have we created these narratives in our culture that condition us to take us away from this? You know, one of my friends is uh, Dacher Keltner. He's the world's leading researcher of compassion. Mm. Uh, he's written some remarkable books. And one of the, one of the things, he, he wrote this book called Compassionate Instinct, and which outlines a ton of this research of like how we're biologically wired to do this. And one of the things is in World War One, I, I think this is research from there. You have army guys on both sides, soldiers, you know, they are commanded to kill each other. And a huge percentage of them would misfire mm. intentionally on the front lines because we're not wired to do that. And then you say, well, what has happened now a, a century later, right? Mm. We, we've just gotten very, very aggressive in terms of deconditioning that, in terms of training people, in terms of traumatizing them. It's actually traumatizing them to take that part away and just say, you're just going to be mechanically doing this and we're going to stuff all the pain of that violence deep down inside you, you know, and, and, and we do this in, in a thousand different ways. We look at transactions, right? We think that's the way to go, right? Mm. I go to the store. I have earned this. I go to a restaurant. I have earned this. And now you're my waiter. And I say, Harish, bring this to me. It's owed to me. Who are you to talk back to me? I don't want to relate to you. 
I just want my food. So I'm using you to just get my food. Mm. And, and I feel entitled because of the money that I have and that I have accumulated, mm. which is so very different, right? We, we used to run these experiments pre-pandemic called Karma Kitchen, mm. where uh, you walk in to a restaurant and your check reads zero. It's mm. zero, not because it's free, but someone before you has paid right. for you. And you are then trusted to pay forward for people after you. And you look at that. You look at that experience. It's not a transactional loan, right? It's a very different kind of an experience because now you're invited to feel gratitude for someone before you. And once you get good at that, you're like, oh, I actually feel gratitude for four generations before, and how my great grandfather used to feed ants. Mm. And so that could, that has a very big ceiling and you can go forward and you say, I want to create that ripple effect for four generations down the road. I want to be that person who gives that half a lemon. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different narrative to place a restaurant interaction mm -hmm. over a transaction where you're just like, oh, this is mine. This is my egos. My ego is so amazing. I have such a big account and I have all this money. I have purchasing power and you do it for me now. And, and so when you have a whole society, when you all day, we have structured society in the realm of these transactions, we start to lose the relational element and we start to then lose the transformational element. And so I, I think it's, I don't think it's about learning a compassion. I think it's about taking the roadblocks away, taking out the impediments. And what will that take? And what is the kind of creativity, right? What is the migration path from this very, very direct reciprocity worldview that we are conditioned with to actually march towards this infinite reciprocity? What does that look like? And how, how do we do that? And I, I think that's a question we can all ask, right? even in business, right? It used to be that businesses try to do good for many generations. You know, now it's like even my business partner, we're all trying to cheat each other, you know? <laughs> so it's like, you know, more for me, like it's, it's that kind of a thing. And then that narrative, it's like more for me. Have you looked at what that I is? Do you have, you know, you think it's a static eye, but have you spent time investigating? Is it actually a static eye, right? Or has that illusion of a static ego, has, has that always made you suffer? And, and all the sages and seers of all traditions, all faiths, they've all repeatedly told us, man, there is no such thing as a static eye. You exist in this moment, you are arising, and then you're passing. And so how do we hold that transient sense of self? Mm. in its right way. I mean, it's there. It's not to deny it that it's there, but it's not as fixed as we think it is. So to accumulate for that, to have fear of its passing, to be insecure, and then to find security from the field of transactions, all of that, it feels very, very uh, misguided. And kids, that's why I think Gandhi would say, hey, learn the law of love from kids, man. They forgive you, they love you, and they have they have amazing research. Uh, you can look it up on even YouTube. They have these little kids, and they're like, at 18 months, they help other people. We are wired to care. That's so I think it's I think it's on us. It's on us to change. <laughs> I have a young daughter. Like what you are saying is very true. She she teaches me a thing or two every day. I've been enjoying this conversation, Nikun. I, I can go on and on, but I know I want to be uh, respectful of your time. So I'll ask you two more questions, if I may. One I I definitely wanted to cover it in my notes, and I want to make sure I I ask you what does happiness mean to you, and is that even something important? Like maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Maybe it is content based, but what what is that thing that matters to you and what is it uh, what does happiness or contentment or peace mean to you I, I i think happiness is the dissolution of ego and uh, a way that i have practiced that dissolution of ego in small ways i mean i'm by no means have i arrived anywhere you know i'm still a work in progress but the way in which i have practiced it is through small acts of service and so I, I can I can vouch for that. I can say, go out and do as in, you don't even need to go out, do it for your loved ones, do it for your neighbors, do it for your, you know, for the company where you work at, like have that orientation of service and and just trust in that reciprocity, like nature is actually for every inch we give nature gives us a foot. And it's so it's the return on investment of not actually uh, seeking outcomes is very high, but nobody tells us that. 
And we have so much fear that prevents us from truly giving in this way. But once we do that, I think we change our identity. And I think that's where happiness arrives. If, if we have a very narrow, constricted sense of an I, I think it, it, it's disconnected from happiness, from being alive, from being connected. But I think as soon as we sort of dismantle that, those inner architectures of oppression for our own selves, I think we enter into a different realm of coming alive. And anything I can read or people I can read more about to learn about this, about the, the, the depths of what we spoke about. How can I learn more about this? How can I reflect on it myself? What can I read more? Well, I am going to quote uh, Swami Vivekananda on this one. He says, read man. He's the living poem. <laughs> it's right there. It's in front of us. Mm -hmm. really all the time right like we are right there forget even other people forget even listeners right mm -hmm. let's say i drop dead right now or, or something happens to you or we never meet again mm -hmm. in this moment can i hold this interaction and it doesn't even matter whether you're speaking or whether you're listening no matter what role you're playing can you actually hold that intention and say may this person be blessed mm -hmm. And may I be an instrument for their greatest happiness. Mm -hmm. Even if I don't know how that is, even if I have no way of even connecting again, or I can't imagine what that would look like, just trusting in that process, that if I hold that intention, I will be an instrument, however small, however big, of that unfolding. And so I, I, think, I think that's what Swami Vivekananda is saying, that read man, he's the living poem. Like read the present moment. You're right there. Give a little extra time to your loved ones at home. Spend a little extra time playing with your daughter, but not as, oh, I want to teach you and make you into an image of myself that's very successful, Like, but actually say, oh, hmm, I actually want to learn the law of love from you. What's happening with you? Maybe you can't intellectualize it, but I know you're a lot closer to it because you haven't been as conditioned. Mm -hmm. And look at that person outside and say, oh, you don't have food. And you're suffering in a material way, but I also have my own suffering because I may have built up a big ego with my accomplishments, for instance, and say, okay, well, how can we all, like, how can my gifts be in service to you? And, and when you start to approach things in that way, I think you are reading life and the living poem that it is. So I would say, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff online, you know, you can Google it and you can find all kinds of things. For business people, I would recommend this book, Give and Take by Adam Grant. Remarkable and a remarkable guy, a close friend of Service Space as well from the get-go. And he makes a strong case of how givers actually end up succeeding in a very different way than takers do. And so why you should be a giver and there's a, a, a science behind it. But I, I would go one step further than that. And I would say, you don't give to get ahead alone. That may happen. That may not happen, but it doesn't really matter because getting, you will dissolve your sense of I, your sense of I changes. And that's like the ultimate win. Like you are winning. You are getting ahead no matter what you do. So you can't go wrong with. You have given me a lot to think about in the most uh, wonderful way. Thank you. Right. And I hope we ch chat again. Maybe I do a bit of homework and I do a bit of, like you said, ego dissolution. I, I love that phrase. I will keep you posted on my journey, but you've given me a lot to think about. And uh, I loved your anecdotes. I loved the stories. I loved your clarity in, in whatever you're saying. And I hope to achieve that level of clarity in my thinking. Thank you. This was a, this was a special gift. Thank you. Thank you, Harish. Thank you for holding uh, space for these kinds of uh, dialogues to come about, you know, so that's a gift you gave me and thank you for your beautiful questions.